Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Niemeyer. The mission of Student of Money is to connect listeners like you to a community of like-minded individuals to help you achieve your goals of financial freedom through entrepreneurship, investing, real estate, and personal development. This is episode 50. So before we get into today's podcast, I want to recognize two milestones. This is our 50th podcast, and we just went over 2,000 downloads. I've gotten a lot of great feedback, and with your help, our next goal is set at 100 podcasts and 10,000 downloads. So thank you for your support. So way back in episode 32, I interviewed Dustin Hendrickson of Mailbox Money, and we talked about the advantages of build to rent versus buying existing properties. Today, we're going to go into a deeper dive with his business partner, Omar Khan, who lives in Texas. Omar is the founder of Boardwalk Wealth and has raised over $50 million in private equity with assets in Texas, Georgia, Florida, and South Dakota. We recently met at an open house of their new 128-unit mid-rise apartment complex that was just completed in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So when someone like Omar from Texas starts investing in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, I knew I had to get him on the show. So here you go. Omar Khan, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Great to see you again after the launch party we met in uh, Sioux Falls, right? We did. I made the trip. It was about a five-hour drive for me to your launch party, your opening of uh, one of the new complexes, the Blue. And it's a very beautiful building. Uh, it was great to go up there, talk to you, talk to your partner, Dustin, talk to the architect that designed it. It's a great location. One of the first things I noticed, real quick story, is I'm driving up there, pulling off the exit, and the roads just jammed, packed full of traffic. And <laughs> I'm and I can see the building off of the interstate. And I and I see all of like the shopping mall and the box stores. And I'm just thinking, this is just a great location. This yeah. is just, look. I mean, I realize it's five o'clock, uh, uh, but it was just like, you're at a great location with all kinds of amenities around you, uh, restaurants and things like that. I said, you know, you're just setting yourself up for success. And I know when I, when I interviewed Dustin, he talked about having that perfect location or a great location, and that's kind of one of the reasons why you guys build. But we'll get into that. Uh, I guess I want to start this off by having you uh, just give a quick introduction to yourself for those listeners and viewers on YouTube that aren't familiar with you. Hey, I'm Omar Khan. Uh, I'm the founder of Boardwalk Wealth. We've transacted on close to $500 million in real estate transactions across the Southeast and now the Midwest. We do both acquisitions, which are value add, as well as developments, both lines of business. Uh, we've got a great team around us. I'm blessed to have great team members, great partners, uh, because without any of that, none of this happens. Yeah, teams are a great thing that I want to dive a little deeper into. Um, but one of the things when I was looking at your bio, you have the CFA certification, which is a certified financial analyst that is highly sought after kind of in a lot of industries and it's difficult to get. It's like uh, three years, there's an exam every year, first exam, second exam, third exam. And uh, you know, that's, that's kind of a highly sought after thing to have. So kudos 
for having your CFA. Uh, I've got the books and I've looked at it and stuff, but uh, you know, that's a lot of number crunching and, and that's a lot of uh, a lot of studying on your part. Yeah, well, I mean, you mean the charter is good. Look, I did the charter at an early age. It was primarily because I was in investment banking and portfolio management earlier. So it was just a good fit. But I think more uh, than the actual specific, a lot of people tend to focus on the knowledge aspect. Hey, I learned this book and I did that. I think what a lot of these things teach you, any of these competitive exams, whether you're uh, you're doing the charter as a CFA or I guess whatever else is another competitive exam, right? A highly sought after competitive exam. I think it's less to do with the education because frankly, anybody can get it these days, but it's more to do with the fact that learning how to operate under pressure for prolonged periods of time, uh, then competing at a very high level, right? Those are things that you are taught. I feel at least that's the things that I took away as opposed to just the education because a lot of people just focus on the academic part without realizing, look, the world is filled with analysts. The world is filled with accountants. The world is filled with cookie cutter engineers and all of that stuff. I mean, the world is filled with everyone. But for people, when you want to take that next step up, right, you want to go from just doing your job to whatever is the next step in your field, it's not just technical profit proficiency that takes you to that next step. There are lots of elements of team management, people management, soft management skill, you know, learning how to delegate, doing it effectively, managing under pressure. Those are things you only learn when you are literally thrown into the deep end of the pool, but you have to do it when you have other, com you have really high competition around you, right? So a lot of people think it's academic, but I feel it's a non-academic parts that you really take away in your professional career that help you go forward. Yeah, well said. Uh, you know, I'm an engineer by trade and background, but I think I always performed better kind of under pressure when there's due dates, when things do get, need to get done. Maybe we were bidding on a job and the bid needs to get out or it's a competitive in nature. And I kind of thrived and enjoyed those environments. And I think that was part of that entrepreneurial spirit uh, that we talk about on the show, because, you know, I talk about entrepreneur, I talk about investing, real estate, and then of course, personal and professional development. So that entrepreneur spirit and that wanting to go out and take those risks and kind of be under pressure to perform. And I think that's too, I, I talk to a lot of athletes that are collegiate athletes that are in that very competitive. And then after they get out of college, uh, they have to figure out how to take that desire and energy to compete into the business world. And I see a lot of division one, two, and three athletes that, that excel in the business world afterwards, because they have that competitive, that competitive, uh, you know, wherewithal within them to compete. So I, that, that's, that's, that's huge. I think that's that's a big part of it. So you're right. The experience, as well as having that entrepreneurial spirit or that that willingness to compete. Yeah, and look, with any of these things, you can't just fake it, right? It's not like Instagram. You can't just fake it. Like, for instance, if you're an athlete, right? You can say you're like, I don't know, the greatest quarterback in the world, but if you're on the field and you don't even know how to, you don't even know how to run a play, how to throw a ball, whatever. I mean, you get caught very, very, very quickly. And, and people are merciless because when they catch you, they will absolutely destroy you in no time. So, but there's nothing, they're not doing anything wrong. They're just trying to do their, your, their job and you have to do your job. Right, right. 
So I think that's a good segue to kind of talk about, you know, your team environment and how you, how you use a team. And I, I think there's a, a problem in the, in the world where, you know, when I would always get interviewed by my supervisors, they always ask you, what's your strengths, what's your weaknesses, and what can you do to improve your weaknesses? And I think in an entrepreneurial world, what I found out is you really need to concentrate on your strengths and then you partner with someone on your weaknesses. So if that's their strong part, right? So you surround yourself with a good team and building businesses and building a real estate portfolio, that's all a team sport. So you want to surround yourselves with people that compliment you. Uh, I know I also say that like my wife compliments me and I compliment her. So we kind of have, uh, you know, opposite personalities and a few things. So, and it's the same thing in the business world when you're picking either partners or if you're hiring employees, uh, finding someone, if you don't like to do accounting and bookkeeping, or if you don't like to do property management, that's not your strength. You can hire that, or you can partner someone who has those strengths. Look, for us, uh, partnership-wise, I think you have to kiss a few frogs before you find out the right partners. And uh, people wiser than me haven't had to kiss a few frogs. They've, they've just been able to nail it on the first go. But uh, you know, it's that I think Buddha said it or who said it, you know, know thyself, right? You have to really know yourself inside and out to really understand. Well, and then to be self-aware and have the humility to understand, hey, this is, I might think I can do this, but do I really want to do this? Is it really my strength? And then having the humility to understand, hey, if a partner comes along, well, you're going to have two kicks in the, cooks in the kitchen now. They might disagree with you. Do I have the ability to listen to constructive feedback and criticism, assuming it's the right person, right? And oftentimes people that are high achievers, they don't necessarily have the ability to listen to feedback, especially when it's an equal, right? Yeah. Because when it's your boss, you kind of curse under your breath and you have to listen, right? And when it's somebody who's lower than you in the totem pole, you can kind of dismiss it. But when somebody is your peer, it can, it can kind of get dicey very quickly, right? And this is why actually I was uh, here, I was re hearing this, uh, what was it? One of these MMA guys saying that in, he's a professional MMA fighter. And he said in his experience, guys that are extremely talented, right? When he goes to a gym, their guys are just so talented, off the charts good. You know, those guys typically don't ever make it in the pro leagues. Like, like they don't go very far. And also guys that are just grinders, like they'll just grind it out. They also don't go very far because you need a combination of both talent and determination, right? So guys that have just pure talent and are coasting on talent might be really good, say, in the gym. But as soon as reality sets in, they're meeting other professionals. Professionalism, a lot of times, is doing things that you don't like because you know you have to do it. It's your job. But guys that are grinders, they can't go to the next level because you need a certain amount of talent. Like, for instance, I can grind it out as much as I like. I'm probably not going to make it to a pro sports team, right? I mean, my, yeah, right. my abilities are not there, no matter what my mindset says, right? And what he said was, look, in his estimation, it's all the guys that are kind of in the middle that you never really think about on the first attempt. Hey, that's the guy. Those are the guys typically that go right over the long run, right to the top. So having the right partners and the team is very important because you have to have the ability to round out your organization skill sets. But then you have to round it out in a way that you're not just, it's not a case of whack-a-mole. You get one person today, then you fire them. Then you get another one, then you fire them. Because you never get continuation, you never get momentum. Yeah, that's there's a lot to dive into there. Uh, you know, right now, 
I'm looking to build. And so I'm interviewing builders, right? Because I'm I'm not I'm not a builder. I don't have the resources, I don't have the knowledge. So I'm talking to general contractors, I'm talking to builders, and I've got to figure out who's the guy I'm gonna partner with. And you know, uh there's a few few of them that are there, but you never know until you uh until you do a deal with them, I guess. And it's kind of my first interview at a job. The guy kind of told me, hey, everybody interviews very well. We don't know if you're going to be a good employee until we hire you, which was I thought that's a great that's a great way to look at it. And it's the same thing when I when I'm uh, screening tenants. You know, I I, I tell a lot of people that I mentor that you got to kiss a lot of frogs to find, like your statement said, to find a, a good tenant because they all interview well when you talk to them and they all look good on the application. Uh, even though you can do the background checks and all that stuff, but you really don't know until they move in. And uh, for partners, I always... That's even more magnified because you really that somebody can turn. Yeah, yeah. So it's... uh, You're 100% right on on what you're saying. Um, So talk to me about your partnership with Dustin in in, uh, South Dakota. You know, because you guys are, I think, knocking it out of the park up there. You've got multiple properties in various uh, developments. I said you had the open house and you had the occupancies up there. So, you know, t- tell me about how you found that partner and that relationship. So, look, Dustin and I, before we did the developments, we've done a lot of acquisitions in the Southeast. Uh, and Dustin and I met at, I'm forgetting, at one of the conferences or something. And we hit it off because typically, look, I am, my family's a business family. We, I mean, I'm the third or fourth generation, I think fourth generation now. And I think part of when you belong to an entrepreneurial family, a lot of times you tend to see certain things uh, just because, you know, your father is doing it or your mother is doing it. It's not like they're teaching you a lesson. You're just seeing things happen in front of you. So many times in our lives, for instance, we had seen that the, like even when business was down, the the way my family was able to say thrive professionally, socially, otherwise was that look, it's a, it's in the Bible also, right? It's seven years of feast and seven years of famine. So when the going is really good, you don't blow your money on dumb stuff. You don't buy like five trucks and bigger houses. You live within your means and you save for the rainy day, right? You're always yeah. saving. You're always investing. You're always trying to nourish and build your teams and your families, right? Because invariably the bad times come. And when the bad times come, they don't tell, they don't give you a six month notice before they come. They they show up right. when you leave when it's the worst possible time for them to show up. So growing up, we had seen a lot of people that when they got money, they become overly flashy. But it's easy come and easy go, right? So a lot of conferences that I attend, uh, I think there's this this thing going. Oh, everything is passive income. You don't have to do the work. Money falls from the sky. Just think positively, and I don't know you'll become a billionaire or something. And right. And my point was, look, man, me thinking like I've always had this guy. Look, me thinking positively has no bearing on the outcome if I'm an idiot. Right. (laughs) I I mean, I can think positively about playing for the point guard for the LA Lakers. But if that's where I stop, nothing's going to happen. Nobody gives a shit. Right. So there are many aspects between thinking positively and, you know, doing so a lot of times when I go to conferences, you have all these flashy people show up in a shiny suit saying da, 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 da. So when I met Dustin, Dustin was, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm an overall conservative guy, but financially I'm a very conservative guy. Right. So when I met Dustin, 
Dustin seemed like a guy who knew what he was talking about, right? And then because, you know, when you're an operator, you talk to another operator, you very quickly understand if somebody knows their line of work. Same with doctors, same with engineers. It's in any profession, right? If yeah. you're a carpenter, you meet another carpenter, you kind of quickly know how much this guy knows, right? So I met him. He wasn't a flashy guy. That's how we hit it off. He was not flashy. Everybody's trying to sell you their thing, right? We did a couple of projects in the Southeast, in Florida and Georgia. So that over the few years developed the relationship. And for all those years, he kept telling me, hey, man, you got to come to the Midwest. You got to look at Sioux Falls. And this was my personal bias because I had always grown up in big cities, lived in big cities, invested in big cities, right? We're talking like, I think the smallest city I've lived in is like, million and a half, two million people, right? So relatively speaking, right? So mm -hmm. it was my bias. I was like, you know, I understand the Midwest is nice and steady, but why would I leave Georgia, Texas, Florida, right? But eventually, you know, we kept having these conversations as a good partner. And even I started thinking, and my wife even started saying, look, if you want to say no, just say no. Just don't, just don't kind of say yes, but not no. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's a yes, right. but sort of deal. And I thought, okay, you know what? That's a very sage advice. What well, if I want to say no, then I'm going to say no based on the data. Cause that's what I would do anyways in my business. Mm -hmm. so I started digging into the data on unemployment on median income on industry concentration. And the more, and this is all publicly available, by the way, from the federal reserve bank, census data, all of this, right? This isn't like you got to pay money to, I don't know, have a special magic trick happen. Right. So we did all of that. I did an extensive study and all the data was pointing basically that look, median incomes were higher in the Midwest and more consistent also, right? The up and down roller coaster of volatility wasn't there, right? Uh, then for industry concentration, at least in the big cities uh, in the Midwest, isn't that concentrated? It's not like once one industry is running the entire town, right? They've done a good job over a period of time. Your unemployment is consistently lower. Again, you're not on that boom and bust cycle right? It's not up one day, down the other. And there is a severe housing shortage, quality housing shortage, because it's not really on the institutional radar as much. So all that flashy hard money doesn't really show up on your door as often, right? right. Or volumes. So three-ish years ago or whatever, two and a half, three, four years ago, when we started looking into all of these things, a lot of my investors and a lot of my other partners that I knew were like, dude, why do you want to go to Sioux Falls? Like, what's the deal? Or why do you even want to go to the Midwest? Pick a city in the Midwest, right? And I was like, look, man, I mean, a part of me wants to say no, but it's my personal bias. I can't let my personal bias determine a financial decision. These are two separate items completely. Right. So we started doing that. A lot of people were telling me, this is the stupidest thing you've ever done. How could you do this? <laughs> and now two and a half, three years later, none of those people are saying anything like that. All those people are giving money. Every month I'm fielding calls from multiple family offices, from private equity groups. Hey, you know, we are really burnt in Texas. And we all have this big platform. You've got this big development pipeline. We're building like close to 1500 units right now in our pipeline, right? Y'all want to figure out some sort of a thing and so a lot of times you need to have the right partners to show you the path, but then you also have to understand that personal biases can also cloud your judgment and decision-making. So you have to have the ability to take that step and separate personal bias from reality, basically. Right. Right. I know when I was launching my real estate fund and I was working with my mentors, uh, you know, my whole deal was, yeah, okay, the Sun Belt, right? We're going to go down south, down to Texas, down to Georgia, things of that sort. But again, that's not my area of expertise. So I was going to have to partner with someone that's local in that area 
uh, or do a fund of funds and invest in someone else's deal down there. And I said, you know, the deal, the problem is, is what I know is Iowa real estate, because this is where all of my properties are. And this is where I, I know what the, the, the state legislature is going to do. I know what the landlord associations are going to do. I know about the tenant base. And then I interviewed Dustin and then I said, yep, he's exactly 100% right. And then I interviewed a local developer here in my corridor of, you know, half a million population. And he's got 1,800, he's got 1,000 units that he's built over the last 20 years. And he's got 800 units in development right now. And, and he's just exploding too. And he said, he said to me, I can't do what I do like in California or in these other markets because there isn't the land they want to do in california just to be very clear <laughs> so that's not really a good example <laughs> that's not i mean yeah california I, I i honestly wouldn't want to be in california but even texas everybody's been looking at texas for so long and then the people i follow like ken mcelroy and uh some of the people from the robert kiyosaki and real rich uh real estate guys radio in Nevada and stuff that are in the Southwest, uh, you know, they're talking about how the insurance claims have gone way up because of the hurricanes and things of that sort. Hey, by the way, I live in Dallas. I think Texas is a great place to raise your family. We live here. Yep. We love it. But this I, whole thing, okay, that everybody's talking about, this is complete bullshit. Everybody saw this coming from like 500 miles away, Okay. All of these people that are telling you, oh, we don't even know about insurance. I don't know how it happened. Yeah. Then the whole reason I cut my teeth in Texas, okay? We yep. moved out of Texas, not because I don't like Texas. I live here. It would be so easy for me to just drive half an hour and go do a deal in Dallas somewhere. But the whole issue about property taxes and insurance mm -hmm. is a big reason that's kept us away from investing in Texas more. It's not like I'm opposed to investing in Texas. Tomorrow, if I find the world's greatest yeah. deal, I'll go but you can't build a business based on feelings right 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 i just feel like i should do it well what does that mean right right but so you know i i decided that i'm going to stay in the midwest because that's what i know that's where i'm comfortable with and that's where i have a proven track record so you know um it's just and and now and now i've been totally convinced to new construction and building is the way to go for all of the reasons that you guys talk about as well as others. Uh, so that's what I'm diving into and, and trying, trying to get off the ground. So, you know, we talked a little bit and you talked a little bit about the current market and, and what is your say on uh, the rise of the interest rates, you know, the current state of the market? Well, I mean, it's the same as everybody else's, man. It freaking sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm telling everybody, do not expect these interest rates to come down. This is the new norm for probably the next decade. And, you know, when I bought my first house back in, I don't know, 1994 or whatever it was, it was nine and a quarter percent was my mortgage rate. And so, you know, this is kind of the new norm. You just have to adjust to it. And uh, all of these people that think, oh, in two years, it's going to come down. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. I, I just... And you don't want to get caught with your pants down. So you just have to pencil things out. And the, it's hard to find a deal right now. The evaluations are high, uh, you know, but you can find them and you can find, you can find deals. It just takes longer. And it just, you have to, you have to 
you just have to work the numbers into your projections. Yeah, look, I can tell you this. If you're trying to do acquisitions right now, yeah, you can't find any deals. Okay. Yeah. Anybody who's telling me any syndicator right now that's doing acquisitions right now is only doing this to pad their own bottom line and to get fees straight up. <laughs> anybody who, yeah. look, I do this. Look, every time I do an acquisition, I actually upfront make more money. So I am yeah. incentivized to do more acquisitions. It's not like I hate acquisitions. I yeah. make more money on them, right? As with an acquisition fee, correct? Yeah, and then I can flip it out in two years or three years, right? But my point is, anybody who's doing it right now, especially in markets like Dallas's and Phoenix's and whatever, I mean, who's doing like four or five of these right now, right? They're just lying. They're literally just trying to pad their book. There is no way. A lot of guys say, oh, it's distress. Distress is coming. Everybody can see it's coming, but it's just yep. not in the magnitude that everybody imagines. So while I don't know where rates are going to be in the next three or five or 10 years, what I can tell you is that it is way more accretive right now to, to do developments. And by the way, don't take my word for it. You can take pretty much all of the biggest players in the country, just see what they're doing. They, it's, they have pivoted from acquisitions to developments. Again, it is easier for them to do acquisitions. It, they make more money on acquisitions. But there is a season for everything, right? There's oftentimes when acquisitions are much easier, doing developments makes no sense. So it's not like a one-size-fits-all policy, right? But there are seasons for everything. Right now, the season, if these things continue, is going to be development. Guys are buying four caps in Phoenix, in Dallas, 80s and 70s vintage products, four, four and a half caps. Your rates are close to six, 6.2%. Mm. I think. They're buying this right now. If you're already building as a developer to a high 7% rate cap rate, which is a return on cost, you are already, you're building to like say high sevens for a new build where somebody's buying it at say four and a half. Right. And 40 year old prior. So just think about which, which is more intelligent. You don't need to be a math major. You don't need to be in real estate to know that if you're paying close to like 50, 60% more for something that's 40 years old, you don't need to be in real estate to put two and two together. Right. Right. And and I love how the things that you are building, uh, especially with Dustin, that, uh, you know, they're already projecting that we're going to make these as efficient as possible. And we're going to make this. We know that we're going to be managing this. So yeah. we're already factoring that in. A lot of builders that just develop and build, they build it. And then once it's stabilized, they sell it. Then they go and build the next one and they do the rinse cycle and repeat, right? When you're, when you're building to long-term hold, you actually build it different and you probably build it better because you're just not going to flip it and sell it. Look, so the quality is probably day, higher. No, no, look, from day one, there's nothing against merchant development. This is called merchant development where you build for a fee and you sell there's nothing wrong with merchant development, but from day one, we said, look, everybody has to pick their poison, right? We're mm -hmm. all in different lines of work. There is no one line of work that's better than the other. We just don't want to be in merchant development at this stage of our careers, right? Because the reason is, look, if you've got a hundred billion dollar firm, sure, it makes a lot of sense. You've got 70 billion in assets and 30 billion to do, right? If you're not at that level, dude, don't even go down this path. Because the problem is if you're a merchant developer, right? And your, your expertise in building and selling, well, if you build, if let's assume you started building two years ago, the market was super hard. Now you are delivering in this market, right? What do you do? 
You can't even line up financing for your takeout. What do you do now? So basically, if that's the only game you're playing and you don't look five years into the future, say you got a five-year note, two years for, say, development, then you know how to manage. So you know, okay, you're buying three years of time just in case things go south, right? If you don't have all of that stuff padded into your numbers, mm -hmm. then that's where dreams go to die and bad things happen to good people. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just, it's a whole different business. Taxes are different than buy and hold and every, everything is just, you know, you got to, it's a completely different business. So that, you know, when you buy, buy to build, that's definitely a, a business as opposed to a long-term investment. So it's, it's just a, a different, different animal and everybody has their area of expertise. Yeah. But again, there's a time and place and season for everything. I feel a lot of times people confuse the thing they are selling with what's right for you. Right. And that's not always the case. So, yeah. So you're in Texas, Georgia, Florida, obviously South Dakota. Uh, any other markets that you're looking at? No, Texas, Georgia, Florida, and South Dakota. We're not actively looking in Texas. Again, I love Texas. Mm -hmm. I just feel like there's not a lot of value to be had right now. So it's primarily Georgia and surrounding markets and South Dakota. We've got our entire pipeline there of development. Um, so I guess go back to the whole, you know, so you do sell properties, right? I mean, so are you looking for long-term holds infinite? How, how do you, how do you talk to your investors on that? I mean, cause obviously you try to want to align the deal yeah. with what the investor's goals are. And I've watched a couple of your social media posts, kind of how you talk to high net worth individuals. You talked about a family office. It's my experience that a family office and a high net worth individual, like a doctor or a dentist is going to be, they have different, different end games, different goals, different, what, you know, like what, what they're trying to do. Uh, like a family office, isn't going to want to be in a long-term hold. They definitely want to exit out and say five to seven years. That's a complete myth. And I'll tell you why different look, family offices are no different to, they are run still by people. It's not like a robot is running that versus like, say, an individual. Every entity, every investor typically falls into a couple of buckets. It's not like, you know, there's an infinite number of possibilities. And by the way, just to be very clear, we might not be a good fit for everyone. For instance, if somebody is just a fix and flipper, I don't think there's anything wrong with that business. In fact, people have made significantly more money than I will ever make doing that business. <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with that business. I am just not in that business, right? But I, so it's a lot of it's expectations management. We tell people, look, here's what we can do. We are going to be transparent. We just never want to be boxed into one strategy. So for instance, when either we acquire or we develop, everything is for sale. Even the furniture in my house is for sale. You come give me a good price, you can walk away. I don't really give a shit, right? But what I don't want to be doing is boxed into a corner where I'm forced to transact, right? Yeah, I you never want to do it. Yeah, forced. Yeah, you want to pick the timing and the terms. Yeah, exactly. I again, by the way, everything is for sale. All of these developments which we want as a long-term hold, they are all for sale. You come give me a price that we feel is egregious and obnoxious, we'll sell it to you. No problem. <laughs> there are no problem selling stuff. But in the absence of finding all the idiots on the planet for me only, which I think would be very hard, right? <laughs> I mean, every single time lightning isn't going to strike, right? We just have to take steps along the way to ensure that we have the highest probability of survival first and then prosperity. Because a lot of people I feel get so caught up in 
20%, 30%, 40% returns, and they don't realize, look, if you lose even 50% of your capital, you need a 100% return just to get back to, to your get base. Back. Yeah. Right. So oftentimes a steady eddy 10 to 10, 12, 15% is a lot better than a very volatile 20%, which is up one day, down the other. I'm just not in that line of work. There's nothing wrong with it. And I tell people, look, if you're looking for excitement, you should get a dog. <laughs> yeah. Cause you know, I, I, since I'm in this business, I get the old Google, uh, um, algorithm already has got me pinpointed as, Oh, you're an accredited investor. Oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to give you these, all of these advertisements for all these deals. And everybody always leads with their target IRR, you know, of whatever it may be. And it's all bullshit, by the way. It you is. Know. It's all BS. What? It's, it's a target, a right? So piece of paper it's written on basically. Yes. Yes. And it, it just bothers me that everybody's leading with, their, with these promises of these high returns that the market, like you said, you could hold a property for two years and the market would have gone up and they could have flipped that property and probably done nothing to it. Uh, we were looking at its duplexes. The guys, the person that bought it, bought it six months ago for a really low price. All they did is come in, raise the rents and then turn around and relist it. And he wanted to make a bunch of money on it uh, just by doing no work and that's all he does uh and i'm like well you know if the market will allow that and sustain that but when when you're talking about just these irrs and then you also talked about how people get these acquisition fees they get disposition fees they get asset management fees um, so some of these syndications that have no intentions of holding long term they're really in this business just to get that that quick flip for that 20% IRR so that they can then get the waterfall model and get their fees and do the acquisition fees and all of that. So um, I, I think that's why it's it, for my personal philosophy is that long-term hold and take that depreciation, offset my active income, pay as little in taxes as possible. I am looking for that infinite return model that Ken McElroy talks about quite a bit. And, and I'm not looked, I'm not looking for capital gains because when you sell a property, it's a taxable, it's a capital gains event that you got to pay taxes on. And you can always 1031, man. You can always 1031, but how do you do it when you're in a fund? How do you well, don't invest in a fund then. Don't invest in fund or in a syndication. You've got to you've got to own it as a tenants in common, right? So I mean, there there's syndications where you can do you know you can do you can do the the DST Delaware Statutory Trust or you can do uh, a REIT. You can ten thirty one into a REIT. You know, you can do a tech tenants in common. Uh, we have a 340 unit property in town here that's owned by 27 different people and it's held as a tenants in common. And then the syndicator that put it together has got a, a tick agreement and a master lease agreement. And so you can structure the deals like that. And, you know, I've had investors that wanted to do 1031s. And what we did is we structured it as a as a tenants in common. And then after you do the mandatory 12 months with the IRS, you can then do a roll up a 721 exchange into a roll up and roll it all up into the deal. Um, or you can actually unroll them as well and roll them back out to it. So there's ways to do it, but it gets complicated and it gets messy. Uh, so it's just, it just seems like most of the people uh, don't want to, now the investor wants to do the rollover because they don't want to pay the taxes, but the syndicator and the person that's putting the deal together, like I said, they're getting paid on the fees and, and the structure on the deal through the acquisition fees, disposition fees, and all the, all of the fee, 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 fee. 
Uh, I'm in it for the long haul. I want to hold it forever. And if I have an investor that wants to get out, uh, we will find someone to take their position, but I never want to sell. And like, like you said, everything's for sale if the price is right and the numbers make sense. But it takes a really long time to find these deals. It takes a really long time to close it, to turn it around, stabilize it, build it, whatever it may be. Um, you know, and, and if we're not doing a whole lot of deals, we're just going to hold on and hang on to. My thing right now is I'm trying to pay down my debt so I've got you know, I'm not over leveraged so that I can ride out these storms. So right now my portfolio, I'm at 50% loan to value, just so I know that I'm going to be able to weather a storm. Yeah, look, I mean, it's different horses, different courses, but what I tell people is, um, look, if you have an hour to assess a person or a deal or something, spend all of that hour on assessing the team and the people right? And not on the deal. Because typically, if the people check out, not always, but 99% yeah. of the time, if the people check out, right, right. you're going to be fine. Okay. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's a trust-based mechanism, but anybody that either wears a shiny suit or is giving predictions all the time, you know, the world is going to end. Now the world is not going to end. Now China yeah. is going to end. Now Russia is going to invade. The sky is falling. <laughs> civilization is collapsing. They're coming for your kids. Anybody who is that severe on the spectrum that just goes zero to 100 in no time, right? Yeah. Typically just avoid those types of people. Always go for somebody that's down the middle type of person, right? That isn't like veering on one end or the other end, right? You don't want emotional people doing the stuff. No matter how good you think you know the future. You just want somebody who's going to chart a middle path, not going to be a crazy lunatic with their biases and just slow and steady wins the race. That's yep. it. You need flash. You need just slow and steady. And especially you don't need people who have had no experience giving program, you know, giving predictions about topics that they have no idea about. I mean, everybody suddenly became an epidemiologist during COVID. <laughs> then they became a geopolitical specialist. Now, people who haven't even done Econ 101 suddenly have become experts on the Fed's interest rate policy. Yeah. And you're like, bro, like, <laughs> it's okay if you stay in your line of business. That's, there's nothing wrong. That's how a society functions, right? You do something good, I do something good, and together we work together. But you can't be an expert Right. On every topic on the planet. Yeah, slow and steady wins a race, and investors invest in people and the team, you know, and not in the managers, and not necessarily the deal. And and I guess that's 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 the takeaway, and that's the important part is uh, make sure you're investing with someone. I always say they got to know, like, and trust you, right? So you're not you're not invested on the deal just because they're saying, hey, we can do a twenty eight percent IRR. Uh, you really want to take a look at who's the people, who's the sponsor, who's putting the deal together. And do, do you know them? Do you like them? And then do you trust them? And if they know, like, and trust you, they'll invest with you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Awesome. I think that's probably where we're going to wrap it up here. You got any, uh, any last uh, words of wisdom? I think we've covered a lot and uh, you've, you've, you've really given me a lot of information. I don't think people should rely on words of wisdom from strangers on the internet, but <laughs> If you really are of that persuasion, you can join my mailing list by going to boardwalkwealth.com. The form, it's, it's right on the homepage. I don't know exactly where it is, but it's right on the homepage. Again, that's at boardwalkwealth.com. That's right. That's right. I went out and actually did that this morning. I subscribed to the newsletter and, uh, uh, you know, I look forward to probably seeing you in South Dakota because I think you've got another property in development that's getting close. 
Yeah, no, we've got five and four or five in development and yeah, a couple of them coming up now. Awesome. All right. I look forward to it. And uh, uh, I'm really, I'm really excited for what you're doing. And that, like you said, it's in the Midwest. And sometimes I think people just think of this stuff as a flyover country, but you know, there's a lot of hidden gems and uh, especially in a, in a state like Iowa and I know South Dakota as well. Uh, the laws are written to uh, benefit the landlords and the, and the developers. And like you said, I don't, I don't think I would buy anything in California. I wouldn't buy anything in New York. I wouldn't buy anything in Illinois. Uh, I want to be in a landlord friendly state and um, like, like Texas and, and Florida. And uh, I would throw Iowa and, and Dakotas and, and some of those other states that have uh, uh, friendly towards landlords. So, yeah, hey, so. you're preaching to the choir. I, I 100% endorse this message. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. All right. All right, Omar, thank you for coming on the show today. Bye for now. All right, talk to you later. All right, guys, what did you think about my interview with Omar? Let me know in the comments. I want to hear what you think. I already know that investing in the Midwest, like states like Iowa, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, offers a lot of advantages that you don't see in other parts of the country. We're often overlooked by the big institutions, and it's great to see someone from Texas seeing the same trends and opportunities that I do. Sometimes slow and steady is what wins the race. If you agree with me, make sure you hit the like button and subscribe to our YouTube channel as well as our weekly podcasts. You can find us on our website at studentofmoney.org and also check out our brand new just launched real estate fund website at jbcapitalfund.com. All right, guys, that's all the time I've got. I'll see you next week right here on the podcast. But remember, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Talk to you soon. Thank you.